have you ever thought that? Have you ever thought that a sin, not that I want you to think about that sin too much, but have you ever committed a sin that's been terrible and have thought, how could you ever have reconciliation and could God ever use you and bless you? Have you ever thought that? Now, I don't know for certainty, but most likely you didn't commit the sin that the brothers of Joseph committed. They had planned to murder their brother. They threw him into a pit to torture him. But then they realized that it'd be better for them if they could make a profit off their brother. So instead of killing him, which of course would be murder, they thought better to kill him would be to sell him. He was probably, what, like 17, I think, years old at that time. So they sold him into slavery. Probably, pretty sure, you haven't committed such a sin as that. Well, these brothers, after their father died, Joseph's father, Joseph was now the most second powerful man in the known world, and this text says that he tells him not to be afraid. Don't be afraid. Why were they afraid? They were afraid because Joseph might get vengeance. And he was in such a position and a place where perhaps even legally in the laws of Egypt and being the second, the second most powerful man in the world, he could do that. And so they, they were afraid. And so then Joseph speaks to them about their fear. And basically he says, cast that fear aside. Verse 21, do not be afraid. Verse 19, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? Here you have Joseph, the one that is innocent, ministering to his brothers. And when he ministers to them about their heinous sin, he brings up the sovereign providence of God. He had the opportunity to crush them. And yet, he serves them and ministers to them. And even the text says, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. He could have crushed them like fleas. And nothing would have happened to him legally. But verse 21 says, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. It's really an incredible passage and a very an interesting way to end the book of Genesis. And so we titled this sermon with the phrase, yeah, right, in a sarcastic sense. That is, yeah, right is the idea, it's a phrase of that what happened is inconceivable. It's surprising. It, it could never be true. That is, that God would take the heinous sin and crime that these brothers did and use it for something good, ultimately preserving Israel and bringing forth the Messiah is something that is inconceivable that God would do. That the incredible goodness of God, even through Joseph also, that Joseph doesn't execute his brothers or toss them in a dungeon forever, but blesses them is almost too hard to believe. 
these brothers were coming to Joseph and were not necessarily motivated by a true sense of their guilt. They had a false fear. They were more afraid of Joseph than God. And so they are seeking forgiveness, but not not in the best way. That's what we talked about last time. And yet, even when they're not seeking forgiveness the best way, Joseph doesn't scold them and say, you guys, you don't even know how to ask forgiveness. You're terrible. Instead, through by the Spirit of God and through humility, he seeks to minister to them, even in their weakness and sinfulness. So all of that to say, yeah, right, that in this passage, the way that God is working and moving sovereignly, providentially, but even through Joseph, is this this movement of this inconceivable, astounding, amazing goodness, grace, and love of God. And I think we can understand this point better by having three words in our minds. And we've looked at two of them. We're going to look at two more a little bit, and then we'll look at the third one. These words are fear, forgiveness, and forward. Fear, forgiveness, and forward. The more that we embrace, the more that we have a delightful understanding of God's sovereignty, we'll be able to deal with fear, we'll be able to forgive and ask for forgiveness, and we'll be able to go forward. And that's what we see in this passage. Fear, forgiveness, and going forward. There are many things that happen to us in life. Many people, after, for me, almost 55 years, have done bad things to me. Am I going to forgive them and move forward? In my life, I've done bad things to other people. Am I going to receive God's forgiveness and go forward? How does fear play into these factors? Will God forgive me? Will other people forgive me? What's going to happen to my life? What's going to happen to these other people? Those are all questions that perhaps we see in this text that Joseph's brothers were facing. And so Joseph says to them, don't be afraid, for I am I in God's place. He's pointing them to God. And then in verse 20, he talks to them about God's sovereign providence and God's goodness and God's sovereign providence to preserve many people alive. So then, the more that we understand and appreciate and trust God's sovereignty, then the better that we'll be able to overcome fear, forgive, even receive forgiveness, and go forward. Now, already we've looked at asking for forgiveness, and we said we should ask for forgiveness sooner rather than than later. Because it took these brothers to officially say the word forgiveness how many years? Well, at least 17, you know, over 30 years. It it took them decades to ask for forgiveness. And even then, they didn't ask for it in a correct way. But we saw here that Joseph forgave them, not that he said the words, I forgive you, but he acted with with forgiveness, because you can see he provides for them, even for their children, and he comforts them, and he speaks kindly to them. That That's forgiveness. Doing good to people and loving them. And maybe he did say, I forgive you. We don't see that in the text, but we see that he responded 
and his actions with, with forgiveness. And we said we need to be careful that we don't just say, I shouldn't say to Lisa, my wife, I forgive you, and then give her the cold shoulder. I should forgive by loving her, by whoever I forgive, I, I should be good to them. And we ended this point last week with, if you really fear God, you will ask for forgiveness sooner than later. And if you don't fear God, then you may delay in asking for forgiveness, and maybe you, you won't even ask. That was last week. Also last week, then, we went with a second point, and we said, since God is sovereign, fight fear with divine providence. And I'm going to do a little bit of a review, but then we're going to get down into a couple of points. We said, first, decide not to live by ungodly fear. Now, we've mentioned this several times already. I've mentioned it several times because it's here in the text. You can see verse 19. Don't be afraid. Verse 21. Don't be afraid. They had a type of ungodly fear, meaning that they weren't afraid what God would do to them. They were afraid of what Joseph would do to them. They had a big, big view of Joseph because of his position and a smaller view of God. If they would have had a bigger view of God, then they would have asked for forgiveness sooner, but they also would have feared Joseph less. This idea of fearing God, we see throughout the Bible, and sometimes we can think of fearing God as something maybe that is unhealthy or morose, but really fearing God is strengthening and it's powerful. It brings freedom and even comfort. Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. It would have been great if the brothers of Joseph would have responded this way. We belong to God. We have a covenant with Yahweh. God has taken care of Abraham and Isaac and our father Jacob. He will take care of us. Yahweh is the creator. They did not respond that way. God wasn't foremost in their minds. Isaiah 46, verse 10, always comes to my mind, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose would be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. It would have been well with the brothers of Joseph if they would have remembered God in this sense. They don't. And so then Joseph, as it were, stands in the place of God and as a prophet, utters to them truth about God. So we want to seek not to be like here, the brothers of Joseph, but to fear God with godly fear. Now, last week, then, we moved on to this Second point, underneath fighting fear with God's divine providence, and we do that, we said, by trusting sovereignty. And if you remember, we said it isn't just this intellectual, you know, I've read Charnock, I've read Sproul, I've read all these different theologians, I've read Watson. That's that's good, but it's more than just this academic information. And what we said is we're basing this on verse 20, is that Joseph is not just telling the brother something that they did not already know. Certainly, Jacob taught them who God was and who Yahweh is. He's the creator, the sustainer, the provider. He's the Lord. He has all the power, all the might in the universe. El Shaddai, right? They, they knew about El Shaddai. 
but rather he was seeking to get them to believe it. And we said that that belief, that trust, is this acknowledgement, it's this adoration of, and even this acquiescing to, that that's really what's involved in faith. You recognize it, you relinquish your own control, and then you relish God being sovereign. But, and this is the point now where I want to not review, but go a little bit deeper. But when you look at this text, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me. That is, these brothers, it wasn't that Joseph maybe, you know, threw a rock at them, like I did to my brother one time. It wasn't just that maybe Judah threw a rock, and uh, Joseph threw a rock and hit Judah, and so then Judah put Joseph in a pit, like spur-of-the-moment retaliation. It wasn't that. This was premeditated. They planned to kill him. They planned to torture him, to do evil against him. And the, the, the yell, right, the thing that's hard for me to understand is here you have Joseph, the one that was abused and the one that was victimized by them, telling them your issue. You are the ones that offended God and me. You're the one that sinned against me. But even with this, you're not trusting the sovereignty of God. You're consumed by guilt and fear because... Do you really know God and that he's sovereign over all things? Even over your your crime, your sin, your, your intentional evil. Even God was sovereign over that. Now, he doesn't let them off the hook. He doesn't say, what you did was okay, or what you did was right. You're, you're not liable for what you did. If you look at verse 20, he says, you meant it for what? For evil. He said, you guys were bad. What you did was bad. But even with your bad intention, God still had an overriding plan for that. It is like Jesus Christ and his life and death. He was betrayed, tortured, and crucified. And we see this in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Speaking of Christ, Peter is preaching and says, This man, Jesus delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Here Peter goes, look, it wasn't by accident that Jesus Christ died. It wasn't by chance. God had a plan. But yet, those evil, godless men that did it, they are still responsible for it. That's why he calls them godless. Or even... And Acts chapter 4, in a very similar, with very similar wording, verse 27, after quoting Psalm 2, says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with all the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. But Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel, were they innocent of evil? No. And we may never fully understand this, but what Joseph is teaching at the very beginning of the Bible is that God is God doesn't operate by chance. 
he has a, a plan and, and his own working out of this plan and his own wisdom, he can include even the evil intentions of people. It doesn't mean that those people are, are innocent and let off the hook. They're responsible for their own evil. And this is the point that Joseph is seeking to get them to understand and that even that we need to understand is that people at times do commit evil things against us. Are they responsible for that evil? Yes. Was God off the throne when that evil happened to you? No. I've had evil happen to me decades and decades ago. Bad. Was God off the throne? Did, Did God forget about me? Did he fail? Did God fail Joseph? Joseph was thrown into a pit by his own family members. Did God fail? You know, either he did or he didn't. Joseph was in a and several positions where it would have been absolutely life and soul crushing for me. Did God fail him? Did God leave him during those times? From how Joseph responds and from what Joseph says and even the text says, no. God had a plan. It doesn't mean that what happened wasn't bad. It doesn't mean that those people that committed the sin, like Potiphar's wife, it doesn't mean that they are let off the hook. Either their sin will be paid for on the cross or in hell forever. But what Joseph is saying and what the passages in Acts say is that God mysteriously has a plan. Even when evil things happen to you, you believers, God has a plan over that and through that to bless you. That's what this verse is saying. You meant evil, but God did not necessarily cancel out that evil that evil act, but in time, that evil act ended up leading to something else, to something else, to something else that blessed all of Israel and that ultimately ended up preserving Israel during a great famine so that the country, the nation, the people group of the Israelites survived so that ultimately there would be who? A Messiah. Jesus. Now, even for Israel to get back to the promised land took how many years? At least 400. So what I'm saying that this text says, that God is saying through Joseph to these brothers, what you did, it was bad. But I, I, this is God, but God is saying, but God, I'm such a big, great, kind, merciful, sovereign God that even though that evil thing you did, I'm going to use that and it's going to end up blessing the whole nation that you're part of, your whole family, and even one day end up blessing the whole world. And that's the kind of God that we have. Satan probably tried to squash Israel many times. And maybe even here he was trying to squash Israel and Joseph. But yet God takes all of that and does what? Ultimately brings about good through it. 
It's really incredible. And that's why I've entitled it, Yeah, right, this incredible story of God's goodness. And again, the thing which is remarkable to me is that, again, Joseph is the one that was the victim. And yet he's seeking to tell his victimizers, God is so big and God is so good and so gracious. Not not excusing the evil that you did. Do I forgive you? I'm going to bless you. But God's going to use your evil to do something good. And so that's good news for you and I. No matter what somebody believers, no matter how somebody has sinned against you, abused you, victimized you, God can not only forgive them, but God can emotionally, physically, spiritually heal you so you can move forward through that. Because God can take that scarring of your life and your soul and he can do something great through it. There are things that happened in my past, like my whole drug life started when I was 10. When I was 10, somebody got me on to, to marijuana and quaaludes and speed and hash, all these different things. I would go to keg parties when I was 10 years old. 10 years old. It's all crazy stuff. I'm not, I'm not sharing everything for, for a purpose. And I used to think, what in the world, Lord? <laughs> Why did you allow, allow those things to happen? Right? Because God could have come down from heaven. He could have rescued Joseph, taken Joseph out of that pit like that. But God allowed that to happen. Right? God can stop evil whenever he wants to. So how come God didn't stop that evil against me? Well, there are many things I don't understand, and I may not understand when I get to heaven. But I do know this, that I could not have had the, I don't think, the the sympathy, the understanding, a type of effectiveness in the prison ministry I had for four years, if those things wouldn't have happened. I was able to address those men and even people in Israel and throughout all my, my ministry to certain individuals in a certain way because of my past. It doesn't excuse how people led me into that kind of life but God ultimately has used it for what? For good. For his pleasure. For his glory. There are many things in our life which we may never understand until we get to heaven. But bad things that happened to us, did God make a mistake? Did God get off his throne? No. God allows in his plan some things to happen to us that aren't good. Like with who? Like with Jesus. And he was, was he a little bit innocent or 100% innocent? He was the most innocent person that ever lived, right? He was God incarnated. So God the Father planned for God the Son to suffer for an ultimate good and glorious purpose. Doesn't excuse what those evil people did, but God had a plan for it. And so we seek to trust this, this goodness of God's sovereignty. Now we also said last week that we need to understand the sinfulness of mankind, and we've already talked about it some, so I won't go too in, too in depth. But again, you can see here in verse 20, as for you, you, you meant evil against me. And I mentioned last week, sometimes we're shocked when people sin against us. 
and this life and this world, until there's a new heaven and a new earth, there's going to be sin. Until you die and cross the river of death and see Jesus face to face, people are going to sin against you. They are. That's that's the way it is. Since Adam and Eve sinned, from then until we see Jesus, there's going to be sin. The Bible says, Jeremiah 17, 9, their heart is deceitfully wicked and beyond what? Beyond cure. So unless God saves a person and regenerates them, a person's natural heart isn't, I want to love God and walk by faith. And I want to exalt Jesus. That's not the direction of any human heart. But rather, I'm going to do my own religion, my own time, my own way. That's what I'm going to do, Lord. It takes an act of God to change the human heart. People, oftentimes I hear this on the radio, on TV, blogs, social media. Very religious people say that basically, when it comes down to it, people need to understand that people, at the core of their being, people are good. I I hear that often. People need to understand, at the core of, uh, of everybody, everybody here is basically good. Once you realize that, then you can really live your life. I've heard that many, many times. Not not in churches, but social media and news and books and papers and things. But that's the opposite of what the Bible says. The Bible says, though you were created in the image of God, you've fallen short of the glory of God. In Romans 1, we've rejected God And we worship not God, but images that we create. Romans Romans 3, verse 9 is very clear. It's a wonderful passage. And it's important that we understand this. Romans chapter 3, verse 9 says, Are we better than they? Not at all. Romans 3, 9. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. That is, everybody. It doesn't matter what religion you are. All of you are under the power of sin. There is none that is righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. That's why we have then verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's a passage in Job, I think it's Job 15, 16, that says that people, and it's unredeemed people, people without Christ, Job 15, 16, they sin like they drink water. That's what Job says. They sin like they drink water. I, ha- I-, I have to have a drink. I have to have something. You know, my mouth is, look, see, I have right here. I'm a little bit thirsty. That's the idea in Job 15, 16. Right? Isn't that true? You you don't sin, and I don't sin because we're like, oh man, uh, I uh, uh, I'm being forced to sin. As a believer, we do what we don't want to do, and what we do want to do, we don't do. That is true. But for the unbeliever, there is this overwhelming urge to disobey God, even through a religious morality, can be disobeying God. 
as it seeks to exalt themselves. And in this passage, that is the push of Joseph, getting them to understand your intentionality wasn't good. You, you threw me in a pit. <laughs> that was bad. And what we do and what we say comes from where? Our heart. It comes from our heart. That's why Jesus said, when you speak, the words come up out from your heart. Out of your being. Now, the difference between a believer and an unbeliever is this. And you've heard this before. Owen used to say this, John Owen. Though sin and a believer, sin does not reign, sin does what? It remains. So the power of sin rules over an unbeliever's life. And a believer's life, that power of sin remains. It's still a power there, but it is not a ruling power. The Holy Spirit is the ruling power. Now, why why bring all this up? Because, again, it's this point that we have to understand. Usually every day, somebody, sometime along the way, is going to sin against you. If you're married, your spouse is going to sin against you. If you have children, your children are going to sin against you. Children, your parents are going to sin against you. When you go to work, is it a pristine environment where nobody sins? No. At work, it's going to be a lot of sin. Praise God for the church, because when you come to church, nobody sins. There's a lot of sin in the church. And we can make almost this kind of mentality in our heads of, I am shocked and I'm surprised, and and how dare other people ever sin against me. Certainly we want to have this high standard of holiness for ourselves first and then to help and urge others also to go forward in Christ. However, we all struggle. And there's always this constant struggle that we're going to have with sin and temptation. Maybe even for some of you, maybe it's a little bit similar to the brothers of Joseph. Not not in the same degree, but in this sense. Have you ever sinned and just been like, I can't believe I did that. How could I sin like that? I must not be saved. Everybody's going to reject me. God's going to reject me. My sin is so terrible. There's a sense in which, yes, that true, that sin could throw you into hell without the righteousness of Christ. You could be thrown into hell because of that. But that's not the first time you sinned. You've probably done many great sins. Every time we sin, we sin against an infinitely glorious God. So every sin is a heinous sin in one sense. I hope I'm being clear with what I'm saying this text says and its application is that Joseph is ministering to his brothers and trying to get them to understand, yeah, your sin was bad. But God, his grace, his goodness, his love, his mercy, as terrible as your sin was, his grace, his mercy, and his love, his plans are more tremendous and more terrific than the terribleness of your sin. This is echoed by Paul at the end of Romans 5, where he says, where sin increases, grace increases even more. And I believe that's what ultimately Joseph is trying to get his brothers to understand. 
So if my wife or my kids or you sin against me, yes, I want to see that repented of, but even more, I also want to have them to understand that there's forgiveness in Christ. There's restoration in Christ. You can go forward in Christ. As horrible as, as the thing that you did, God can overcome that. And you can go forward in him. And that's something that we have to understand and deal with. As horrible as somebody's sin was, shouldn't be too shocked by it. David was a man after God's own heart. And what did he do? He was pretty bad. Samson, a judge of Israel, he, he was pretty bad. We, we don't let people off the hook, but Moses wasn't even allowed to go into the promised land. Because of his sin. And so we want to be careful that, yes, we have this standard of Christ. Let's seek to be like Christ for ourselves and for others. But there is also, God is not done with people yet. Right? We're not done with our Christian life. Others aren't done living for Jesus until they see Jesus face to face. And so God can, can forgive them and use them and they can still go forward and we can still go forward in Christ for his glory. Now, that's a little bit of review and a little bit of pressing in a little bit deeper into this issue of God's sovereignty and fear and forgiveness. But now, finally, and lastly, this idea of going forward. Since God is sovereign, forward, ho! Have you ever heard that? Have you ever seen an, an old movie? Maybe there's this wagon train, and it's a bunch of settlers, and they're traveling maybe from New York, New Jersey, maybe from Philadelphia, and they're going through Kansas, and they're going to go all the way, all the way, Across maybe to what South Dakota or maybe to California. It's a big long ragging train, and they're going forward ho. Have you ever seen that? Yeah, forward ho. It's the idea of let's go march on, let's keep going forward. And there's all kinds of obstacles, all kinds of things happen to them on the way. You know, lack of water, wind, tornadoes, drought, engines, all, all kinds of terrible things. But yet, always, what do they do? Forward, ho! They keep going. And when I look at this passage, verses 22 to 26, the way that God put this passage together is after Joseph talks to his brothers, saying, yeah, what you did was really bad, but God and his good sovereignty is better. God's good plan is better than your bad plan. With that in mind, then brothers, my brothers, Keep trusting God. Keep believing God. Live like his promises are sure and keep going forward. That's the message, I think, of verses 22 to 26. Since the Lord is in control ultimately of all things, even though we don't always understand it, charge ahead. Keep going forward. So if you would, you can just look at the text with me first. Joseph is so old now, he's 110, and he's able to see three levels, right, of his grandkids. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, and they even are born on Joseph's knees, is the idea that he's able to give to his great-grandkids the promises of the inheritance. 
It's like probably I'll be able to give my inheritance to Thomas. Maybe not to his grandkids. That would be great. But like to his grandkids, grandkids, grandkids. <laughs> Joseph is able to give to his his kids, 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 kids the inheritance. That's Joseph and how the Lord has has blessed him. And as he's about to pass away, he's not on his deathbed so full of himself that he's just thinking about him, but he's thinking about who? His brothers. He's still trying to minister to them. That's why I I love how this passage ends and how it ends the, the book of Genesis. Joseph is blessed. He's dying well. God has blessed him. He's able to see his kids, 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 kids. But yet as he passes away, he's looking to his brothers and he's still trying to bless them and encourage them to believe God, to trust God, and to keep going forward with God. I hope I pass away that way. I hope Jesus Christ comes back before I pass away. But if I'm to die on this earth, I hope it's like this. Now, he says to his brothers, you can see, he says so many times, God will take care of you. God will bring you up. Then verse 25, God will surely take care of you and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph is saying, God, his promises are still on. You can see that. I will take care of you. I will bring you up. He will bring you up from this land. He promised this oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God's going to keep his promise. And then in verse 25, God will surely, he will surely take care of you. Here's what you should do. Carry my bones up from here to Egypt. And the New Testament says in Hebrews 11:22 that Joseph is doing this by faith. So this passage in Genesis 22 to 26 is not just some kind of unimportant add-on. Hebrews 11:22 by faith Joseph when he was dying made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. So J- Joseph is listed in the hall of faith as having faith talking to his brothers say saying I believe God's promises about that he's going to give the Israelites the land of Canaan. It's going to be theirs. I believe that's true. So, as a token to that truth, believing that's true, I want my bones buried with my father's father's father's, my family there in Israel, not here. I believe God. I want you men also to believe God. Trust God. Trust his plan. You saw what God did with your evil intentions and me. Keep trusting God. His plan is on. He keeps his promises. God will do what he says. God will keep his word. Now, as we said before, though this is true, did it happen immediately? He says right here in this text, he says, God will surely take care of you. He says, God will bring you up from this land to the land which he promised an oath to Abraham. Did God keep that promise? Yes. Did it happen immediately? No. 400 years. During that time, did the life of the Israelites always go well? And was it always easy for them? No. 
It was not. They became slaves. Did God fail? No. Did God keep his promise? Yes. And when the Israelites left Egypt to go to the promised land, they had an abundance of more provision and riches and wealth and even people than they had when they first went to Egypt. God answered his promises and blessed them through these promises. But the promises of God don't always, are not always fulfilled instantaneously, immediately. It can take time. And God's own sovereign providence, it, it takes time. Jesus said that he would return. It's been 2,000 years. Is Jesus not going to keep his promise? Is Jesus not going to keep his promise? Is Jesus Christ going to fail and not return? Is Christianity and the Bible and the promises of God just some kind of illusion, a fairy tale? There's a man that works with the World Economic Forum underneath Klaus Schwab. I can't pronounce his name. Harry somebody. And he's into all the uh, people in the future. We're not going to be human. We're going to be part human and part cyborg. And basically he said what we should look forward. This is what he said. My paraphrase. We should not look forward to the return of Jesus Christ. That's not the answer. But rather humanity being converted into cyborgs, into robots, getting chips inside of us. He works for Klaus Schwab. World Economic Forum. So I typed. This man's going to have a very interesting conversation with King Yeshua. Sooner or later. Because I believe, based upon the Bible, that God will always keep his promises. And so Jesus Christ will return. It could be today, it could be tomorrow could be next year, could be 10 years from now, 20 years from now. I know he's going to return sooner today than he was yesterday. Timing, the time is ticking down when Christ returns. God always keeps, always his promises. Always. The Israelites were looking forward to go to the promised land. That took time. Some of them died. That generation and several generations died before they could go to the promised land. Jesus promised he would return and that he would take us to the promised land of heaven, which we're going to talk about at camp. And we'll be there in a world of perfect love and glory forever and forever and forever and forever. Jesus will keep his promises. Could be today, could be tomorrow. But the issue is, as it was for these brothers, how do we respond now? And what Joseph is telling to them is to trust God, be ready to carry my bones up from here. Apparently, in Joseph's mind, he's thinking God's going to keep his promise. It's going to be, you know, <laughs> like in two years. So get ready to carry my bones. So our response should be, Jesus made a promise that he would return. It's been 2,000 years. You know what? <laughs> he could return in my generation. Didn't Paul, didn't he have this glorious hope that Christ would return? I'll never forget one time a man came up to me and said, you you talk about and pray too much about the return of Christ. 
I don't understand that. <laughs> the overwhelming desire of all of our hearts should be with the one that we love the most. That is Jesus. The answer to the world is not that we all become synthesized into cyborgs, <laughs> but rather that Jesus Christ returns, conquers all evil, and that we're taken up with him forever and forever into a world of perfect love and glory with him and all those believers forever and forever and forever. So then what do we do? We go forward. We, we, we press on. We seek to be like Christ and to know Christ. Because again, in our life, remember he's talking to these brothers that committed this great sin. What does he say to them in verses 22 to 26? You scoundrels, you would never take my bones to Israel. You're not going to believe in God. I'm done with you. That's not what he says to them. He's encouraging them. He doesn't even bring up that sin. That sin's gone, I think, in his mind. It's done with. Forget it. I believe God. Trust God. Go forward. For some of you, including me, the past is the past. If you need to get right with somebody, ask for their forgiveness. If you need to get right with God, ask for God's forgiveness. Paul says putting the past behind, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. Philippians 3, press forward. If you think so much about the sin that you committed in the past, what happened, what could have happened, what could be, you're going to be paralyzed. Get it right with God. Get it right with that person or people. And then go forward. Press on. Seek to become like Christ and, and to know Christ. This is the application, I believe, of verses 22 to 26. And this is how the book of Genesis is ending. And remember, this, is, uh, this book, the Pentateuch in Genesis, is given to Israel as they're wandering around in the wilderness. And they are to enter into the promised land and to take the bones of, of, of Joseph. And so they're being encouraged. Go forward. Keep going forward. Believe in God. Trust him. The other generation didn't. They weren't allowed to enter into the promised land. Now you enter into the promised land and trust God. So I end then with this. Why would you not go forward in Christ? Why would you not seek to know Christ and to become more like Christ? To, to not fear with ungodly fear, why would you not want to forgive or ask for forgiveness and go forward? What, what benefit is there not forgiving somebody? Does that benefit you? Does not asking for forgiveness somehow benefit you? Or me? Does fearing people benefit you? If you seek not to go forward in Christ, if you seek, I don't want to be like Christ, I don't want to respond like Christ, I don't want to trust Christ, is that going to bless you? It won't bless you and it won't bless me. Sometimes I think the schemes of the devil are to, to blind us, to cause us not to see and not to believe, to have the great blessings of God in your life Trust that God is sovereign. Not that we understand everything. Trust that God is sovereign, even through evil times. Don't fear people, fear God. Forgive, ask forgiveness, and then keep pressing forward. There's great blessing in that. 
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Genesis. Lord, we look forward to having one more sermon and to review and to wrap up all that we've learned from the book of Genesis. Help us, Lord, as we trust your sovereignty, Lord. We we confess Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. We trust the Lord with all of our heart. We lean not on our own understanding. We acknowledge you in all of your ways and pray that you would direct our paths, Lord. We give you the glory for Christ's sake. Amen.